Thanks for listening to the KC Morning Show. Everything's running smoothly. Yo, yo, yo! Yow! What is going on? My name's Hartzell. That's Kitty. And this right here, it's your KC Morning hoes, what up, Kit Say? What up on a Tuesday? Rare Tuesday appearance from the cat herself. What's the word, girl? What's up? You know what we do on Tuesdays? Do you follow along on the show on Tuesdays? You do some historical nonsense with uh, nonsense. Professor Harvey JK. Y'all riff. I want to say that on my phone, like, you know, if we're doing top eights, MySpace in 2022, yeah, he'd be like one or two. What? No lower than three. I'm just being honest. Where am I at on the list? You up there? You way up there, girl. You so up high. So on the show today, my friends, you know what we do. We take back America. Tuesdays on your KC Morning Show. It is FDR month, and uh, this is part three. Very good time. Listen all the way to the end. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You know I like to throw in some music at the end. Kitty, you should listen to this one because... uh, I think you like the song by itself. A little, uh, little Streisand, a little Judy Garland. All right, I'm little, I'm little, listening. A little Judy Garland. Yeah. Bob Streisand. Okay. Oh, too much? Too much. Not enough? Too much. Kitty, it is a good day to be a Kansas City, and yeah? Great day. The best of days. Such a good one. Happy days are here again. You'll get that later in the show. Okay. My name's Hartzell. That's Kitty. We'll see you in the morning. Bye. Bye. Greetings, Hartzell. Search the force, and a tremor I have felt. It was you. Your ego just busted a planet. The Casey Morning Show. January 11, 1970, victory belonged to Hank Stram and his Kansas City Chiefs. TV9 News special report, close up the flood of 77. From the Kemper Arena in Kansas City, Missouri, it's Milwaukee Bucks against the Kansas City Kings. Now Kansas Cityans must decide what happens next. What is to follow the city's Holy Week riots? I am here at the American Royal World Series of Barbecue. Daryl Motley awaits, and the Kansas City Royals are world champions. Professor Harvey K, my brother, how are you today, sir? I don't know. I don't know what it is. Now, we've been talking off air now for about, I don't know, six hours. <laughs> Already. And I don't know if it's just, you know, the, the, the playoffs atmosphere or just the unbridled optimism. But I don't know. There seems to be a pep in both your and my step, Professor Harvey K. You've been busy. It's like the resurgence of the Professor Emeritus, Professor Harvey K. Well, let's face it. You're ecstatic because you're going on to the next game. Woo. No longer the wild card weekend. You're in the playoffs for real. I, however, have yet to worry like you've had to worry. This coming week, we play San Francisco Saturday night. The 49ers come to Green Bay and they will, I hope, freeze their asses off. <laughs> yeah, what is the, what's the update from Green Bay, Professor K? What's the weather like? Give us that, uh, the forecast before the game. Well, my thinking is it probably is not going to be frigid. So maybe it'll be, maybe it'll be mid-20s. Tonight, it could be dropping. 
And maybe they'll drop the ball. Who knows? Because <laughs> I'm only slightly kidding when I say the resurgence of one Professor Harvey K. because you have been busy, but I feel like we have to be busy now. The fight continues and you're still very much in the trenches, Professor K. Absolutely. A- absolutely. In fact, one has to worry I don't get trench mouth. So uh, <laughs> I haven't been writing anything, but I've been talking a lot. So, you know, I've been doing the, the regular run of shows, but I did something very special yesterday. I spoke at a Progressive Democrats of America, PDA, town hall, and they had a really nice turnout of a couple to few hundred people. And they had asked me to speak on the need for progressives to form a coalition to advance FDR's idea of an economic bill of rights for America. And you and I will get to FDR's economic bill of rights probably in about two or three weeks. And I don't want to jump the gun on everything, but it is the case that the FDR's Economic Bill of Rights, although we in these last 30 years until Bernie reintroduced the idea in the 2016 and then 2020 campaigns, we had all but forgotten the Economic Bill of Rights. And it's really a really shame because my parents' generation did not necessarily forget it. And they were reminded of it at various times most especially in the 1960s by Martin Luther King Jr. And here we are talking to each other on MLK Day. King was very much influenced by Franklin Roosevelt. His father was really, I mean, I don't know to what extent he got ever had the right to vote. Well, he had the right. He just didn't have the ability to vote in Georgia, if, if I'm not mistaken. But he did admire and did have a great affection for FDR and the New Deal. And young Martin Luther King Jr., who went off to college at the age of like 15, maybe even 14 and a half at Morehouse College there in Atlanta, a school that had a remarkable president, very much a a committed progressive to whatever extent African-Americans could be publicly progressive in the Deep South at that time. The president of the college brought in for a residency, as I understand it, A. Philip Randolph, the great labor and civil rights leader who headed up the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, the great black union that was deeply involved in pushing FDR himself to sign the Fair Employment Practice Commission into being as an executive order. When Randolph came, he spoke at the college, and apparently Martin Luther King was very much impressed, not only by Randolph's commitment to the New Deal and the promise of the Four Freedoms and an Economic Bill of Rights, but he was also impressed by the the imperative that Black labor might play in bringing about these things and in basically making the South ever more democratic someday. So King never forgot what he learned at Morehouse and always spoke decidedly in favor of labor and civil rights alliance. And then in the 60s, when the civil rights movement was truly ascendant in the public mind and imagination, and we saw first the passage and signing by LBJ of the civil rights in 64, voting rights in 65, King, who had spoken of the need for a minority bill of rights or a bill of rights for disadvantaged people early in the 60s, when he turned in the late 60s towards the question of poverty, and was seeking to launch the Poor People's Campaign in 67, 68, he called straightforwardly for an economic bill of rights for all Americans. And it's a piece that showed up in the Guardian newspaper. And also uh, after his assassination, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, which was his organization, took that idea and promoted it. And I believe they issued a public statement and made it their own in which they put next to each other the Economic Bill of Rights vision that King had and the Economic Bill of Rights vision 
that FDR had. So there is a definite link between FDR and Martin Luther King, even though during the FDR administration, as we'll point out along the way, the original legislation that FDR was seeking to advance for the New Deal, even the most powerful of the legislation, the Social Security and National Labor Relations Act, there was nothing in those bills that were advanced that specifically would have excluded African-Americans from any participation in them. However, the Southern Democrats were so powerful in the South, they really never faced any significant opposition in the Deep South. So once they were elected in either the House or the Senate, they were probably going to be there for life. So basically, they would gain seniority year after year after year. So if Democrats won big, as they did in 32, 34, 36, and so on, the tragedy was that FDR had this progressive vision that was meant to be inclusive, but Southern Democrats chaired the committees. Now, they couldn't legislate on race, blatantly on race, the 14th Amendment after the Civil War prevented that. But there was nothing in the Constitution to prevent them from legislating by occupation. So when they enacted or passed for FDR's signature, the Social Security Act and the National Labor Relations Act in 1935, they actually excluded from active participation in either of those new laws, the one providing for old age insurance and the other one providing for the right to organize and bargain collectively in industry. They excluded farm workers and household workers, which, by the way, also meant that in the Southwest, Mexican-Americans were being excluded. Actually, there were a lot of white farm workers. They were excluded, too, in both cases. And up north, and I, I, at least if history from the 19th century continued to some extent in the 20th, up in New England, it's quite possible that Irish-American maids would have been left out. But the main thing is that they were targeting these Southern Democrats, these white supremacists, racists, Jim Crow elected uh, Democrats were targeting African-Americans to keep them out of the benefits of these two laws. And FDR had to ask himself, do I sign these or, or do I demand they go back? And they might well have never been made law. And he came to the conclusion the best thing to do was to enact these and then return to them in, in future years. And it would be the case, I believe, by the late 1950s that the exclusions were transcended in the Truman and Eisenhower administrations. I mean, I'm not denying the, the racism that prevailed in, in much of the New Deal, but it didn't emanate specifically from the White House. I think that's, that, that's key. Anyhow, Martin Luther King and his, his father, and in fact, the majority of Southern Blacks loved FDR. They named their kids Franklin and Eleanor. Some of them named their sons Roosevelt. I'm not going to speak on behalf of Southern African Americans to assume to the degree that they were excluded, they necessarily didn't embrace FDR's possibilities. The other thing to remember is that the Works Progress Administration and other job-creating efforts in the South nationally, and that included the South, and that goes back even to the predecessors, they included African-Americans. It was the case in the South, of course, that blacks and whites were probably in separate work crews. Well, even MLK said, especially towards the end there, that it was all about, you know, the coalition building. He would mention poor whites right after he was talking about the poor black farmer. I mean, they were in the same sentence intentionally. He always said that, you know, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, those were just the beginning. If anything, those were the easy parts. The March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs. Jobs and freedom. That's right. And I will note that in the wake of that, that A. Philip Randolph, who had the very idea, and along with Bayard Rustin, was responsible for creating the March on Washington in 63, which we will get to in, back in 1941, the effort of the first March on Washington. I'm holding this up for you to see because <laughs> I don't know. Nobody else is going to see it. This is the original freedom budget that A. Philip Randolph had a team of people create 
which was to literally advance a massive end of poverty campaign and initiative in the 60s based on the idea of the Four Freedoms and Economic Bill of Rights. And I believe it's standing on A. Philip Randolph's and FDR's shoulders that King advanced the idea of an Economic Bill of Rights in 68 again. And I'll just read one paragraph from King's piece in The Guardian. We need an Economic Bill of Rights. This would guarantee a job to all people who want to work and are able to work. It would also guarantee an income for all who are not able to work. Some people are too young, some are too old, some are physically disabled, And yet in order to live, they need income. That is social democracy 101, my friends. Absolutely. You bet. And anyone who sees Martin Luther King as a civil rights activist alone is failing to appreciate the grander vision that motivated him and that he projected and that he fought for. Not merely civil rights, but economic rights as well. So many parallels, especially as we're doing this segment today on MLK Day. When you think of a figure like MLK, I've already seen all the tweets from all the corporate ridiculous accounts. You know, they're using the same quotes over and over as they are actively trying to disenfranchise those who they claim to be so on the side for. Same thing with FDR, you know, same thing with this radical progressive message, radical progressive change. Capital has to co-opt that because now they can put a ceiling on what we can talk about. We can go buy now at Target Harvey Black Lives Matter shirts. And in Joe Biden's America, he says, well, look, look on the TV, look at the commercials. It's, you have interracial couples. Isn't that great? Well, no, because now big capital has decided what we can even talk about now. Have we had those same post-George Floyd conversations in the last year and a half? I sure don't think so. No, no. When I first started teaching, my first year in a full-time teaching position was at St. Cloud State University. And I had a friend who taught over in the sociology department. His name was Lee. And Lee taught intro sociology by way of the Wall Street Journal. Every day he would read the Wall Street Journal and talk about the sociology of capitalism. And he would tell his students, I'll never forget what he said. He said, in the morning, you can spit at the system in protest. That afternoon, capitalism will harness it. And that night, they will sell it to you for Christmas. <laughs> Professor Harvey K., my brother, on that note, shall we hop into, I guess this is part three now of FDR month? Part three of FDR month. We're going to talk about the first term of FDR from the period of his inauguration in 1933 to basically, but not yet, the 36 election campaign and the radicalism of his remarks during that 36 campaign. But something I should point out. So we're going to first take up the first inaugural address, which is famous. And I've titled it in the book, FDR and Democracy. The only thing we have to fear is fear itself. March 4th, 1933. You imagine the elections are in November and not until March is a new president inaugurated. Talk about a lame duck presidency, right? Number one. Number two, it's the case that, especially in moments of crisis, there's a sense of leaderless, rudderless kind of sense of what's going on. And FDR was determined not to step in to rescue the Hoover administration. I mean, Hoover had basically accused FDR of being too radical for America, you know, like socialism or fascism, that kind I mean, really. So he was, he wanted to start his presidency when he became president. But on that day, March 4th, 1933, a speech which is famous as one of his most important speeches. I mean, keep in mind, everyone, the depression has already been underway for a few years. The banks at this point, you know, just closing in mass. Unemployment was probably hitting at least 25%, maybe for African-Americans, 50%. I mean, people were losing their homes. Farmers were losing their farmsteads. America was just literally going down the drain 
economically. Vast numbers of people were out living in Hoovervilles. Young people were being pushed out of their homes by parents who could no longer afford to literally put food on the table to feed them. And FDR is about to become president. Best way of looking at it is fear gripped the nation. Although I will make it clear that Americans were not necessarily without a sense of possibility. You know, they're always, they were looking for ways of organizing. There were protests by veterans. There were protests by farmers. I mean, there was real activity. Fear gripped the nation, but it didn't mean people were just like deer caught in headlights. The vast majority, perhaps, but there were real organizing efforts underway. FDR goes before the nation, and he knows he has to reassure Americans that whatever he's about to tell them is not an impossible task. We'll cover a lot of this speech, not all of it, but there are some really key elements here. Take it away. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive, and will prosper. So, first of all, let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. In every dark hour of our national life, a leadership of frankness and vigor has met with the understanding and support of the people themselves, which is essential to victory. I am convinced that you will again give that support to leadership in these critical days. Yeah, I mean, he's really determined basically to tell people, don't worry, we can do this. By the way, Eleanor Roosevelt, I believe, wrote in a diary saying, like, there is reason to fear but I understand why my husband said that, <laughs> that kind of thing. He went on, I'm gonna, we're going to skip ahead a bit. He went on and he said, yet our distress comes from no failure of substance. That's important, okay? It's not like we're already in the abyss, however much it may seem that way. And by the way, they were in the abyss. And he's again, he's trying to calm their fears. But he's also does something important, which you rarely see even Democratic leaders do. He points a finger at where the culprits are. Go ahead. The money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truths. The measure of the restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values more noble than mere monetary profit. Yeah, I want to remind people that they heard our last episode when we talked about the Commonwealth Club speech in which he called for an economic declaration of rights. And he had laid it out in a historical fashion. He said that for too long, Americans had allowed the titans of industry, in other words, the corporate bosses and elites, to trample on the deck, the promise of the declaration. It was time to start literally turning the tables. That's a good way of putting it. By the way, in, in that spirit, I want everyone to go onto YouTube and type in talking about a revolution. Here, Tracy Chapman's, which you played, did you not, on the Friday? We sure episode. did. We sure did. He moves from the idea of we only have fear itself to fear, and he says, restoration calls. However, not for changes in ethics alone. This nation asks for action and action now. Hartzell, take that next paragraph. Our greatest primary task is to put people to work. This is no unsolvable problem if we face it wisely and courageously. It can be accomplished in part by direct recruiting by the government itself, treating the task as we would treat the emergency of a war. But at the same time, through this employment, accomplishing greatly needed projects to stimulate and reorganize the use of our natural resources. We can do this. And he calls on them late in the speech to give him 
the kind of support he would need if he were leading a campaign in a war. Okay, now that scared some people because they thought, wait, there's these fascists are taking over in Europe. Is FDR trying to lean us? No, what FDR wanted to do is he wanted people prepared for democratic discipline to make things happen. They didn't want, he wanted them not to get distracted by who knows what, right? But really commit themselves to this. And Americans would, in their millions, commit their labors and their energies both to the tasks of the New Deal and to organizing labor unions. And and basically, women would organize the first great housewives movement. Now, he closes this speech to reassure Americans that he is not at all thinking about authoritarianism. He is thinking about democratic progress. We do not distrust the future of essential democracy. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate that they want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They have made me the present instrument of their wishes in the spirit of the gift I take it. And then he basically expresses his, I mean, he he had a strong faith in God, a certain providential faith, And he says, in this dedication of a nation, we humbly ask the blessing of God. May he protect each and every one of us. May he guide me in the days to come. Or as the feminists might like to say, may she guide me in the days to come. Now, this is important before we move ahead. The first hundred days of the FDR administration were unprecedented. He and the New Dealers and the Congress of the day enacted the National Industrial Recovery Act, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Security and Exchange Commission, the Glass-Steagall Act, which separated commercial banking and investment banking, which, by the way, the utterly, utterly misguided, and I'm being nice, Bill Clinton signed into law an end of the Glass-Steagall Act, which basically began to pave the way to the economic and financial crisis of 2007, 8, and 9 that we never really truly recovered from. The next speech we should take up is actually the presidential statement on signing the National Industrial Recovery Act in June of 33. And I just want to point out to people, this is a very unusual act. This was going to allow corporations to actually join together and set prices together. The idea was he he includes these corporations that they would be on these boards, but he also made sure that the boards had labor and consumer advisory boards to help regulate it. The company heads, even given the power they were being granted, they did not like the New Deal because it came with the empowerment of labor. Because in this very same National Industrial Recovery Act, even though it licensed things that were not supposed to be legal for business to do, it also created those boards and included a clause that granted the right to organize unions and bargain collectively to workers. That was a radical act. Unfortunately, in the course of the next couple of years, the companies figured out how to get around it. They started creating company unions. Nothing in the law would have necessarily prohibited that. But it is the case that workers responded in millions and organized unions across the country. In fact, labor leaders called it the Magna Carta of labor, even though it would later have to be basically overcome with the National Labor Relations Act. The other thing it did for the first time ever it provided for a federal minimum wage. And FDR said at the signing, 
something which was a projection of his real aspirations and ambitions, it seems to me, he said, to be equally plain that no business which depends for existence on paying less than living wages to its workers has any right to continue in this country. In other words, and I, I won't even give away the punchline, Hartzell, read that paragraph we were talking about earlier that is in his statement that he signed. Throughout industry, the change from starvation wages and starvation employment to living wages and sustained employment can, in large part, be made by an industrial covenant to which all employers shall subscribe. It is greatly to their interest to do this because decent living, widely spread among our 125 million people, eventually means the opening up to industry of the richest market which the world has known. Now, that's the key term, living wage. He wasn't messing around. Granted, he was signing into law something that provided the first federal minimum wage, but his intention was to begin the path to living wages, which, by the way, we have never truly achieved. I mean, FDR was an aspirational president in addition to being a radical and progressive president. Now, something else he says in the course of this statement is worth noting because it will lead us to understand the way he conducted his presidency. It is a presidency in which he wasn't the guy who was going to make all this happen. The American people were going to make this happen in tandem with him and the New Dealers. And they would have a lot of conflict between presidential administration and you know working people. But the point was, in a fashion, they worked in tandem in favor of literally enhancing, extending, and deepening American democracy. And but listen to what he says here. In this statement, he says, finally, this law, the National Industrial Recovery Act, is a challenge to our whole people. There is no power in America that can force against the public will such action as we require. But there is no group in America that can withstand the force of an aroused public opinion. This was his message. One, to capitalists, and two, to Republicans, that it's not me, us. You're not just going to have to deal with me and my new dealers and a Democratic-dominated Congress. You're going to have to deal with the American people, American working people, if you want to obstruct the kinds of things we aspire to accomplish. Let's move to the next speech, which will further testify or offer testimony to the fact that he loved speaking to young people. You know, he spoke in 26 to the high schoolers at that prep school up in New England. This time he's speaking at Washington College in Maryland, a speech that I titled, You Young Men and Women Have a Duty to Your Whole Community. And in this speech, in addition to encouraging them to, to be involved and engaged and take advantage of their time in, in college and also to support the idea of providing more education for more young Americans, he says something interesting about income and wealth inequality in America. Take that paragraph. The wider we can have a distribution of wealth in the proper sense of that term, the more we can make it possible for every man, woman, and child throughout the land to have the necessities. And when they find that they do not have to lie awake nights wondering where the food for the morrow is coming from, then we shall have the kind of security which means so much to the progress and the spirit of the country. The next speech is where FDR really does tell us what's going on in this New Deal. It's already underway. Americans already love it. And that year, 1934, during which he gave this fireside chat, the Democrats who already control Congress, will see an even greater control of Congress after November of, of 34. Now here in June 1934, he offers a fireside chat. He presents a fireside chat in which he lays out what really are not the three dimensions, but the four dimensions 
of the New Deal. The first dimension was relief, relief. The second dimension was recovery, economic recovery. And then there's a third and fourth dimension which work together. And I think it'd be good if people heard that paragraph, Hartzell, if you could read that. At the same time, we have recognized the necessity of reform and reconstruction. Reform, because much of our trouble today and in the past few years, has been due to a lack of understanding of the elementary principles of justice and fairness by those in whom leadership in business and finance was placed. Reconstruction, because new conditions in our economic life, as well as old but neglected conditions, had to be corrected. So this is really important. It's reform and reconstruction. And keep in mind, he talked earlier about in that prior address at Washington College, he talked about the distribution of wealth. So I think it'd be a good idea to note to people that he would later give a speech. This is now in June 1935, in which he's going to explain why he's raising the taxes on the rich, which was the last thing they wanted. Have, have I told you, Hartzell, about why the rich in 32 supported FDR? No, you have not. So in 1932, surprisingly enough, though obviously... Most rich people supported Hoover and the Republicans. There were very rich people, some of the richest people in America, who seemed to indicate a certain sympathy for FDR. I mean, they hated FDR, probably, but they, they thought that FDR would do something that might save them from paying more taxes. I can't tell you how they voted, but it's the case that they imagined that if FDR was elected, that he would bring an end to prohibition. Now, let's face it. A lot of people went to speakeasies. The mafia got rich, basically, off of smuggling liquor. Kansas City had a huge speakeasy scene. And I will tell everyone, one of my great grandmothers ran a speakeasy during the during prohibition in, in New York City. But the thing is that FDR and the Democrats they basically promised they would lift prohibition. So these rich folks, they thought, huh. now they too had never had trouble drinking. They were, weren't concerned. Oh, now we'll get to drink more. It's that they figured, okay, in prohibition, and they could basically encourage a tax on every beer that working people drank. That would avoid them having to pay more in income taxes. Well, they were wrong. FDR did end prohibition and at the same time looked forward to raising the taxes to help underwrite the New Deal operations. So in June of 1935, I titled it, Our Revenue Laws Have Operated to the Unfair Advantage to the Few. And he, he states in this speech, social unrest and a deepening sense of unfairness are dangers to our national life, which we must minimize by rigorous methods. And it didn't mean he was going to call out the police or the National Guard. He said, People know that vast personal incomes come not only through the effort or ability or luck of those who receive them, but also because of the opportunities for advantage which government itself contributes. Therefore, the duty rests upon the government to restrict such incomes, how? By way of very high taxes. He made it very clear in that speech and elsewhere that the income distribution and the wealth distribution needed to be addressed, that we could not truly escape the Great Depression and the injustices that people were suffering without redistributing wealth and income in America. And you can imagine how that pissed off the bankers and the capitalists, the industrialists. And I will tell you that this time that they organized, the richest men in America organized the American Liberty League. The American Liberty League spent millions of dollars trying 
to turn public opinion against FDR in hopes that in 1936, they could put a Republican in the White House. Well, the problem was that for all of the millions they spent on radio shows, on books and pamphlet, and what then was the sort of YouTube of the day film strips, the fact is they could not get a grassroots movement going. The grassroots wanted FDR. They liked the New Deal. They wanted even more New Deal. And it's also the case that, generally speaking, FDR was pursuing this redistribution. It didn't mean he was necessarily lining up the rich and reaching into their pockets and taking money out of it. It was taxing them. And Congress approved those taxes. And then, by way of the initiatives that he was creating, it was being redistributed to workers, to workers and, and their families. So, you know, he did exactly what he was what he was trying to do. And he would have done even more and more and more and more of that through his presidency when opportunity arose. So from 33, well, actually from 32, but from 33 through 35, FDR launched a new deal that involved millions of workers in all their American diversity getting involved in the reconstruction efforts. He had launched relief efforts. He had launched recovery efforts. He had regulated, or better way of putting it, he had subjected business to public regulation and control. And I want to point out that in 35, the Supreme Court would actually rule in a way that would bring an end to the National Industrial Recovery Act. And we didn't mention it, the Agricultural Adjustment Act. And FDR basically was willing to see those things come to an end because he was going to pass two huge bills. One, the Social Security Act to fight poverty amongst the aged and those who were handicapped or disabled in some way. And he was going to make sure that families of single parent households were going to be taken care of in one way or another. Second, he was going to sign into law the National Labor Relations Act, which was the initiative of the labor movement and Senator Robert Wagner of New York. I mean, in 1935 would take place what came to be called the Second New Deal. He would raise taxes, even more strongly seek to regulate business and finance. He would empower working people with the National Labor Relations Act, and he would sign into law the Social Security Act, which is probably the most fundamental act in the creation of social democracy in the United States. He didn't get to include national health insurance, which he wanted to be part of Social Security, and he had to stand back and watch the Southern Democrats basically screw African-American agricultural workers and household workers by excluding those categories of workers. By the way, let's make it clear. Northern Blacks who were involved in labor unions benefited from the National Labor Relations Act. Northern workers who were Black benefited from Social Security. I mean, it's got to be clear about this. You know, people always ask me when I talk about FDR, well, what about? You know, what about? Well, let me make it clear. FDR was no saint. There were any number of things he should have done differently or better had he had the opportunity to do so. But it is the case, if you're going to hold anyone accountable for the racist sins of the day, as much as FDR was president, and the buck stops here, they might say, the Southern Democrats were prepared not only to block Blacks from enjoying benefits, but poor whites as well. Make that very clear. So there you go. We've seen FDR projecting and pursuing the New Deal. And as a consequence, by the way, as we'll see in the next next time we we meet, not only did the Democrats win even greater control of Congress in 34, but FDR would win the greatest landslide victory in American history to that date in 1936. We'll get to that next time. 
Well, I think, again, one of the reasons why we do this every single week is we want to put this into a current perspective. And you mentioned the backlash, the anti-New Dealers. Fast forward to what we just went through the last 20, 24 months. We had direct payments. We had child tax credits that actually cut childhood poverty in half. And now it's gone. It's all it's gone. the Republicans and Manchin and Cinema and all those who are hiding behind the skirts of those two people. We criticize Biden, but also I'll criticize left media as well. You know, we have bullet points to go change the world, but I feel like so much we want to talk to each other and analyze the problem. And that gets us nowhere, but still talking about a problem. And by the way, should we reveal the fact, and you can decide to edit this out or not, should we reveal the fact that we're going to do a, a quick 20-minute conversation? Let's go ahead and tell these folks. Okay, so Hartzell had the idea that this Thursday, we're going to record a 20-minute, at most, a 20-minute conversation on the Biden effort to posture as FDR this past year, and to what extent that's been real or an illusion or literally a lie. And we're going to be joined, I guess, by a young friend of mine, a young friend of ours, John Shelton, who's a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay and a leading activist here in Wisconsin with the American Federation of Teachers. And I guess, Harvey, coming back to my point, I think I may have found my point. <laughs> Maybe. I don't want to believe, Harvey, that it's just you and I that are the optimists in the room. You know, I am still fired up about this. I still believe that we have a chance. I think our window is still very much open to do this radical, bold, social democratic platform that resonates. We know it resonates. The majority of Americans want national health care. The majority of Americans want free or at least affordable public higher education. The majority of Americans want what FDR proposed in the Economic Bill of Rights of 1944, that then Martin Luther King Jr. renewed in his call in 1968 for an Economic Bill of Rights again for all Americans. Professor Harvey K., my brother, where can these folks find you on the internet? On Twitter at Harvey, initial J-K. So it's H-A-R-V-E-Y-J-K-A-Y-E. And where do they find you? They can get me at Hartzell965. They get the show, the KC Morning Show, at KC Morning Show. And I will say this, Professor K, we, we mentioned this at the beginning of the show. You really are having a resurgence right now, my friend. And I hope you know that we need your voice. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I think the KC Morning Show, which operates as a podcast, should be a, a one to two hour radio show in Kansas City. Any radio station managers listening. Just listen to the opening every day of the KC Morning Show. That's a radio show. You guys got to wake up. What's the term you got to I'm not going to tell them to be woke. All I'm going to tell them is wake up. <laughs> wake up and make sure everybody in Kansas City wakes up every morning to the KC Morning Show. Oh, get your trouble. Happy day. Come on, get happy. I hear again a All cares above a clear Shout hallelujah. So let's sing a song. Come on and have me cheer again. Get ready Happy for days the are here again. The sun is shining together. Come on and have Shout it now. Happy 
across a river Soon your cares will all be gone There'll be no more From now on From now on Forget the past And just get happy I hear again You better change the sky Show.